Welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Foxes of Harrow by Frank Yerby. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Corey Garibaldi, a professor of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His brand new book is Impermanent Blackness, The Making and Unmaking of Interracial Literary Culture in Modern America, just out from Princeton University Press. He joins us by Skype as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Corey, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. Why is The Foxes of Harrow by Frank Yerby a great book? The Foxes of Harrow is a great book because it is an outlier for how successful it was. So both critically and commercially. It's not usual for a book that is canonical to be successful when it first appears. So one of the best examples I have of that is uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby, for example. So a book that's a canonical text in our own time, but many reviewers at the time thought that it was confusing. They didn't understand it, nor did they necessarily appreciate it. Frank Yerby's Foxes of Harrow, that was a book that was almost uniformly uh, revered when it appeared. Not only did it have this critical and commercial acclaim, it was also a great book because it was incendiary. And in that respect, it uh, is a great book that broke boundaries and cross barriers, both in terms of literary genres and in race relations in the United States in the late Jim Crow period. After Foxes was published, a critic for The New Yorker said that Mr. Yerby has packed everything into this novel, passion, politics, Creole society, sex, and clashes between the races, among other things. We're going to talk about all that. We're going to talk about the story in Foxes of Harrow, its characters, the author, its importance is a book in American history and in publishing history. And Corey, let's just jump into that right away. Frank Yerby with Foxes of Harrow became the first black writer in the United States to sell one million copies of his book. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. This is noteworthy for a couple different reasons. In 1946, when the book was published, it sold 500,000 copies just a few months after it was released. By the end of 1946, it had already sold over a million copies, which is an extraordinary number of books for that time period. So not only a milestone, but the sheer number of books that was sold in such a short time span was also significant as well. Now let's jump into the book itself. It begins with a brief preface, which is before chapter one, of course, and it provides a short description of Harrow, H-A-R-R-O-W, the Harrow from from the foxes of Harrow, from, from the title. What is Harrow and what do we learn about it in this preface? Okay, so Harrow is a plantation and this plantation Harrow is a grand plantation. It's set 15 miles outside of New Orleans. The time period is the antebellum period in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Harrow is owned by Stephen Fox of the Foxes of Harrow. He is an Irish-American who has just recently immigrated to the United States. The Foxes of Harrow is a rags-to-riches story. So the book is primarily set on this plantation estate outside of New Orleans, and that plantation estate is Harrow. And when we meet it, it's after all the events of the novel. In fact, it's down on its heels. It's it's a little ruined. It's even a little gothic when we meet it in this preface. Yes. 
it's it's land that needs to be cultivated is how you can best characterize Harrow. So this is a part of the rags to riches narrative of Yerby's account in that this land is cultivated and then it is the generator of Stephen Fox's, this Irish American protagonist, uh, large fortune that he acquires in the antebellum United States. So Stephen Fox is our main character. He's the owner of Harrow. He's not the owner of Harrow when we meet him in chapter one. In fact, uh, when we meet him in chapter one, he's getting tossed off a riverboat and being called a cheat and a card shark and a black-hearted scoundrel. Who is this guy at the opening of The Foxes of Harrow? Stephen Fox is a gambler. He is a hobo by Edo contemporary standards. He is someone who is, you know, per your remarks, someone who's deeply stereotyped because of his Irish heritage. So, you know, at this point in American society, there's a high degree of assimilation of Irish people, but there's still some stigma that suggests that they, in some ways, are adjacent to whiteness. And so Yerby is ripping off of what these stereotypes of the Irish are in World War II America. So what do you mean by that, by World War II America? Because the book is written in 1946, but it's an antebellum book, as you mentioned. And when it begins, we are in the year 1825. What about the World War II era does Frank Yerby want to say? Oh, this is a, this is a great question. So... The World War II era is one that is more so than any precursor, you know, emphatically American and encouraging Americanization, right? So this idea that Americans of different races and ethnicities can come together under this umbrella, under, you know, the protection of the nation state that is America and sort of embody their American-ness. So Yerby, in many ways, by hearkening back to the Irish ethnicity of Stephen Fox is attempting to sort of provide us with a kind of assimilation tale. How an Irish person who is stigmatized and seen and othered, you know, effectively becomes American in the antebellum period. So his meditation on that during the Second World War is in many ways timely because this is a time where there's another great push for Americanization, uh, you know, warts and all in terms of how that actually functions. When we meet Stephen Fox, he's in Louisiana. He's going to enter New Orleans. New Orleans, of course, is a southern city, but it has a unique identity. What was New Orleans like in the 1820s? What did Stephen Fox encounter when he arrived there? So New Orleans is a global city. Everyone, you know, especially in the U.S., but certainly abroad, has some kind of fondness or appreciation for New Orleans in our own time. But in the early 19th century, New Orleans was far more Atlantic and global than it is by the standards of the 21st century. So it's not only deeply interconnected with the Caribbean, it's also deeply interconnected with Latin America more broad, Latin America more broadly. You also have New Orleans as the center of sort of the plantation economy and in terms of both the ways that it's interconnected with the Atlantic world and the industrial revolution, and but then also the, um, the, the sale of persons who are enslaved as well. So 
it has people who, and then it also has people who are coming in and traveling up the Mississippi River, uh, you know, in the early to mid 19th century. So it's a truly global place in terms of what New Orleans would have looked like at this time. So Stephen Fox is this Irish immigrant. He's an outsider. He becomes an insider, at least an insider of sorts, doesn't he? How does he rise in this society in, in the Foxes of Harrow? So initially he rises by gambling. And he's a successful gambler. He's a successful risk taker. But his fortune and ultimately is generated from owning these two large plantations. So he owns people. Uh, these people cultivate cotton. That is the basis of his fortune. So combined with his gambling and his risk-taking, it is the cotton economy that will make Stephen Fox the wealthy man that he becomes in Yerby's narrative. There's some important women in this book. One of them is called Odalie. She's his wife. Who is she? How does he meet her? What is she like? Odalie is from a storied, wealthy, aristocratic, Southern Creole family. So she's someone who would be a part of this historic, aristocratic, New Orleanian elite. And so it's almost against the odds that he's able to marry this woman. And not only that, it's almost against the odds that he becomes the center of the couple's wealth. So that in many ways, he would be someone who would today would be understood as new money. And his new money is a fortune that can't be rivaled by Odalie's family. His marriage to her is a bid for status, a bid for social status, which he acquires through the marriage, but it's also a bad marriage. It's a really bad marriage. And it's a bad marriage in part because it's a cold marriage. It's a marriage of arrangement. It's a marriage that in many ways is characteristic of how people understand aristocratic and, you know, marriages among the elites in the 19th century, people who end up marrying because of contacts for business concerns rather than marrying for love. And and most importantly, in relation to Stephen Fox, his true love is actually a mixed race black woman who is in many ways sort of the competing relationship in the context of the Foxes of Harrow. Now that character is called Desiree. Who is she? Desiree is a, is a mixed-race woman who Stephen Fox has a passionate relationship with. So if Odalie is framed as this cold woman who's from this aristocratic family who coheres with aristocratic conventions and, you know, the New, Orleans, New Orleanian aristocratic or upper class, then his mistress is a woman who makes him happy who he has a passionate love affair with, who he's able to be himself with, and so forth, and so on. Now, is this a forbidden relationship? This is a relationship that walks a fine line in the period, in that it's a common relationship. You know, we, we know that as historians, we know that these kinds of relationships are ubiquitous in, uh, you know, slaveholding society, including in, you know, the American South. But this is also a relationship that is somewhat controversial in that, you know, this person is a mistress, 
This is always going to be somewhat contentious, but it's even more contentious than that in the context of the American South because this person is mixed race. And so while there's a sort of tradition of uh, white men having these mixed race mistresses in New Orleans in particular, this is not something that is necessarily going to be smiled upon by aristocratic society. Now, we're getting a sense that the story of the Foxes of Harrow is, is a romance. It's, it's got a bit of a soap opera element to it. It's a, it's a sweeping, panoramic, multi-generational family drama. It is, in the, in the best way. So I think in many ways, if the story was written today, it would rival some of the stories that we see on Netflix, HBO, these stories that play on the soap opera genre, but give them some depth and form that we were not able to necessarily access or appreciate in the, the good old days when soap operas were our only way of accessing these kinds of romantic genre, genres on television. So the book came out in 1946, and it reminded me in so many ways of that other great antebellum romantic potboiler, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, which was published in 1936, so it's a decade before The Foxes of Harrow, and then the movie is from 1939. Is that a good way to look at The Foxes of Harrow as a a similar kind of book in the same genre as a as a companion piece to it. How how would you compare and contrast it to Gone with the Wind? I think that Gone with the Wind is an excellent counterpart to Foxes of Harrow, in no small part because contemporaries actually compared Foxes of Harrow to Gone with the Wind. And one of the things that they found was that Foxes of Harrow was far less racist than Gone with the Wind. So if Gone with the Wind is criticized for the ways that Black people in that novel and in that film are stereotyped and are subservient. Foxes of Harrow is generally understood to represent a different tradition that challenges this regional romanticized version of the plantation. So Yerby doesn't romanticize uh, either, you know, Southern decadence or plantation in the same ways that we associate with Margaret Mitchell. And the other important thing about the distinction between Gone with the Wind and with Foxes of Harrow is that you see someone who is Irish-American, someone of Irish descent, who's forming a type of loyalty and allegiance with African-Americans that you don't see in Gone with the Wind. So it's almost imagining a different kind of way that Irish-American people and African-Americans are interconnected with one another and how they might interconnect and, you know, be advocates for one another and so forth and so on. So in this novel, how does Frank Yerby treat race and racism and slavery? Because here we've got this American, Black American writer covering the antebellum period, his major character is Irish, full of white characters. Of course, there are many uh, black characters in the book as well. What is he saying about race and slavery when he puts out this book in 1946? Well, one of the things that he does that's distinctive for his time is that he populates his book with African-American characters that 
aren't simply background and that aren't simply dehumanized and that aren't simply othered. So in many ways, you know, literary scholars would characterize this move as universalizing African-American characters so that we can appreciate them and appreciate their humanity, despite the fact that their humanity would have otherwise been denied by being people who are enslaved. The other thing that is revolutionary about this book is that he has characters that don't simply conform to being slaves. He has characters in the book that challenge the inferior status that people who are enslaved are normally given. So the characters themselves are people with agency. They're people who challenge white supremacist customs. They indict the system in slavery, and that was recognized by Yerby's contemporaries. So, uh, you know, in the 1940s, you had some Black commentators who were saying that Yerby's novel was the strongest indictment of the American South and American slavery, and the strongest indictment that that had been seen in novel form since Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. One of the Black characters with agency is called Inch. Who is Inch and what is his story? Inch is one of Stephen Vox's slaves on the plantation, the the plantation in Harrow. And uh, he's someone who becomes educated. He's someone who's brave. He's someone who fights. He's someone who stands up in ways that are unusually appreciated uh, for a protagonist that is someone who is enslaved. What does Stephen Fox, our main character, think of slavery? He enters this slaveholding society. He adapts to it. He becomes a slave owner himself. Is he at all conflicted about what he sees around him? Stephen Fox is incredibly conflicted about the system of slavery. So he's very complicated in owning slaves himself, but then also being someone who's a critic of how slavery actually functions in this antebellum milieu. So he forms a romance with a black woman. He is a critic for how black people are treated, but then he also owns slaves. So He's a character of some complexity, and this, you know, enables a whole new perspective on how we might understand people who either own slaves or people who observe the system of slavery in terms of how they related to it. Is the book subversive? This book is incredibly subversive. It was incredibly subversive for its time. So, The Foxes of Harrow was published in 1946. Two years earlier, Lillian Smith's famous novel, Strange Fruit was published, and that book is about interracial romance and features interracial sex. That book was banned in a number of American cities, and for a short period, there was a national ban that was imposed by the post office, and that ban was not lifted until Eleanor Roosevelt asked her husband to intervene on behalf of the novel so that it could circulate nationwide. So any stories that featured interracial romance or interracial sex in the 1940s were still incredibly contentious in the United States, in no small part because legal Jim Crow is still the dominant standard, especially in the American South. So races are not supposed to interact 
with one another. And they're certainly not supposed to interact in any way that is romantic or sexual. And so Foxes of Harrow is sensational in rendering this sincere romance between this Irish-American man and this woman who is mixed race and Black. So how and why did this book break through and become such a gigantic commercial success? This book became a commercial success because it's a page-turner. So it has a story, it has a plot, it's exciting, it has an upward trajectory so that you see someone who comes from nothing, who then sort of, you know, builds this sort of empire for himself. And he builds this empire for himself that, you know, at least superficially is one that is uh, inclusive and one that is sort of inspired by the greater good. And it has all of these compelling romantic, you know, vignettes that Stephen finds himself in. This was a play on Gone with the Wind done by a Black person that turned the plantation romance genre on its head. It gave Black people agency. It was authored by a Black person. And it was still exciting. It wasn't protest per se, but it was playing with a romantic genre that Americans were familiar with, but innovating how it rendered slavery and the possibilities of racial reconciliation. So who was Frank Yerby, the author behind it all? Born in 1916, died in 1991. This was a new name for me. Who was this guy? What did he do? What is his achievement above and beyond the Foxes of Harrow? Foxes of Harrow was Frank Gerby's first book, and he went on to write 33 novels over the course of his career. So during that period, his novel sold upwards of 60 million copies worldwide. Uh, his novels were translated into 24 different languages, at least 24 different languages. And there are some estimates that put his book sales somewhere closer to 80 million copies. So he was an extraordinarily successful writer. He is considered to be one of the top five most popular writers of the 20th century, those who are American, at least. In the early 1950s, he was the most popular author in France. He had... In addition to Boxes of Harrow, he had two other uh, novels adap adapted as major Hollywood films. He had a children's book that was adapted as a one-hour one television program. He was prolific. He was popular. He was on every American's bookshelf. Now, Corey, I'm sure all that's true. But if it is, how come we haven't heard of this guy? I want to ask, how is he remembered? But really, why is he forgotten? Why is his name not as well known as so many other writers from the 20th century? Unfortunately, Frank Yerby remains little more than a footnote in Black literary studies and in American literary studies. So one of the reasons that he's someone who is by and large unknown in our own time is that his novels were associated with the pulp genre. So pulp genre is generally something that is conflated with the romance genre. That's generally the kind of 
writing that falls outside of the canon. So people did not necessarily engage with his works as ones that were either historically important or important in terms of their literary innovations. So he was shortchanged in that respect. The other thing that people accused Frank Kirby of, which is something that occurred shortly after Foxes of Harrow was written, was they accused Frank Kirby of being a popular writer and a popular writer who was too white or not black enough. So there was some skepticism about whether or not his subsequent novels rose to the occasion and rose to the achievement of Foxes that was a clearer sort of attack on racial injustice, racial segregation, the system of slavery, and so forth and so on. So in some ways, his own success contributed to the decline of his reputation. Your new book is called Impermanent Blackness, The Making and Unmaking of Interracial Literary Culture in Modern America. And so, Corey, did... Frank Kirby's readers know he was black? Did they care? And then what is his contribution to interracial literary culture in the United States? This is a matter of some debate. So you have some scholars who allege that Frank Kirby's readers did not know that he was black, but it was extraordinarily common to acknowledge his racial identity in popular publications during the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and later on. So uh, we have some conflicting evidence that suggests that Southerners were not always aware of the fact that Frank Kirby was a Black man, but he was certainly known as an African-American writer among African-Americans. He was widely celebrated in African-American publications and by African-American critics. And he was certainly known as an African-American writer, both in the northern U.S. and other regions of the United States, and certainly abroad as well. So there's some confusion as to how many people knew that he was an African-American writer. But I think that we can safely say that most of his readers would have actually known that he was an African-American writer. The thing that is distinctive about Frank Kirby is that he revolutionizes African-American writing so that its habitus is much larger than what was commonly assumed of African-American writers. So he wrote about all sorts of things that don't necessarily correspond either neatly or simply with African-American life. So his interests were incredibly diverse and that is essentially what his legacy is, right? As a, as a, as a novel, novelist who was committed first and foremost to entertaining his reader rather than to sort of emphasize, reiterate, or sort of meditate upon, you know, ways that we do not connect with one another or, you know, particular kinds of racial problems in the United States. How did you discover Frank Yerby and the Foxes of Harrow? What's your story as a reader? My story as a reader is that I came across Frank Yerby in the archives. So he was not someone who I was taught about when I was an undergraduate in college. His name came to me when I was researching in Publishers Weeklies. So I was looking for 
how black writers were portrayed, how they were sold, how they were marketed to the uh, American public. And one of the things that struck me is that there was this person, Frank Kirby, who was on the cover of several Publishers Weeklies from the 1950s. And then when I went into those Publishers Weeklies, I realized that he was an African-American man. And publishers wrote about that. But it was something that I'd never heard of. And so I'd never known that there was a Black author who was as successful as him. And it was a real revelation to find out that he was so successful. What surprised me is that there were a number of Black authors, intellectuals, and cultural professionals who were also as successful as he was over the course of the 20th century. And that turned into the basis of my book, In Permanent Blackness, looking at these people who are at the very top of the American literary field in the 20th century. There are a lot of well-known Black writers throughout American history, and we've covered many of them on this podcast series. Phyllis Wheatley from the founding era, Frederick Douglass, Zora Neale Hurston, Ralph Ellison, and so on. Now we have Frank Yerby. Corey, who are a couple of other writers? Just name check them. A couple of other writers who we ought to think about and look up in this tradition. One that I think is incredibly important in terms of thinking about popular Black writers would be W.S. Bratwhite. He was someone who was considered to be the foremost literary critic in the United States in the early 20th century in the United States. Another person who overlaps with Frank Kirby is Ellen Terry. So she primarily wrote children's books. They were incredibly successful. So she was one of the most commercially successful authors of American children's literature of her time. She also wrote in the 1950s. So... You know, those are just a couple names, but I could go on and on and on about Black authors who were incredibly commercially successful, who also made important literary innovations in the 20th century. Well, let's wrap up with Frank Yerby, our topic today. What is the case for reading The Foxes of Harrow now in the 2020s? The case for reading Frank Yerby in the 2020s is that his books are still exciting. They are still page turners. They're still funny. They are stories about America that we know that are turned on their head in some interesting ways from the perspective of a Black author who is also an astute intellectual observer. And the books are also often historical in nature. These these books are popular and they can tell us a lot about the 20th century, And they can also tell us about the historical periods that he's attempting to render. So it's a multifaceted, popular way of engaging with the literary past. I find his works to be some of the most interesting of the modern literary era in the United States. Corey Garibaldi, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Foxes of Harrow by Frank Yerby. Thank you so much for having me. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through my website at heymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at heymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.